Tonight, we're going over this passage that you probably heard now for the third time. And I think it's not a coincidence that Pastor Lloyd is going through the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't, like, conspire with him. I didn't say, like, hey, let's go through the Sermon on the Mount together. It just so happened that way. So if you're here on a Sunday, you heard that. Pastor Lanny McDonald, he shared that passage. I had no idea he was sharing that passage, but he did for the guys' session, which is awesome. And then tonight, we're also going through this passage again, especially about lust, about marriage, and about your word. That's what we're talking about tonight. If you'd like to title your message, tonight's called Keeping Your Covenants. Keeping Your Covenants. Now, the word covenant, according to the Bible, it's this concept of a biblical agreement that two parties are agreeing, they're promising, they're committing to do something or be in relationship with one another. So this would typically happen for the Hebrew family over a meal, um, but different cultures celebrate this as well, or, or actually not celebrate, but different cultures have this practice as well. Uh, in Japanese cultures, they would exchange a cup of sake, which is uh, Japanese alcohol. Two parties would do that to say, we're in this together, we're family now, we're in agreement with one another, we are covenanting with one another. But actually, even deeper than that, the Hebrew concept of covenant has to do with actually taking an animal, slicing it in half, and then the two would walk together saying, listen, if I fail to uphold my side of the agreement, I am willing to let this happen to me for myself to be cut in half. That's kind of the idea. So it was an extreme kind of a picture to say that we are taking our commitments our covenants seriously. Now, for Christians, it's important for us to keep our commitments because we represent a God who says that he's committed to us. We believe in a covenantal, steadfast, loving God who says, despite what you do, I am still committed to you. We as Christians say that Jesus is the truth. Not that he is a part of the truth, but he himself is truth. And so representing him well means that we would keep our word. We are speaking truth to others. If we say that we're going to be somewhere, that we're actually there. If we say that we love people, we're actually going to continue to show them love. We don't do these things flippantly. So we have three different ways that Jesus uh, explains how the covenant relationship should look like. And that's first with our heart, in verses 27 through 30. Then it's with our marriage, in verses 31 to 32. And then finally, 33 through 37, with our word. So that's what we'll be talking about tonight, is keeping our covenants, keeping our commitments with, number one, our heart, number two, our marriage, and number three, our word. So firstly, we're talking about our hearts. You have that passage about um, there about lust, starting in verse 27, when Jesus says, You have heard it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the Pharisees, you know, they reinterpreted the way that the scriptures were written. They tried to, like, go beyond the law. They tried to, to make it accessible to everybody. And basically what they said is, you know, if you don't like your wife, 
if she's not really doing the right things, you have the right to be able to break off this covenant with her. Unfortunately, that's kind of like what you see today, right? It's almost like marriage is really not a thing anymore. People are married two or three, four, five times. Not a big deal. You see this in celebrity marriages all the time. It's not really disappointing to anyone anymore when you see these things on the news because you feel like it's almost like when a celebrity marriage lasts, it's like a rarity. You know, when we see people that are married for 50 years, that's, that's a wow factor. Oh my gosh, you've been married for so long. That's amazing. But really, should it be amazing? Should that not be the norm, especially for those that are Christians? And so what Jesus says is, you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery, okay? But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he goes beyond what people think makes them exempt from the law. Whereas people would say, at least I didn't actually go out and sleep with anybody. Jesus says, yeah, but you have lust in your heart. That's what leads to all these things. It's not like people just wake up one day and like, man, I just committed murder. There's a root sin in your heart that when it grows, it, it gives birth to sin, which leads to death. So we need to make sure that our hearts are right before the Lord and we're watching the things that we're taking in because that could lead to actions that uh, we, we don't as Christians want to partake in. This is why Job said in Job chapter 31 verse 1, I made a covenant with mine eyes and why should I look upon a maid? That's the King James Version. I didn't have time to change the version. But the point is that Job says, I'm not going to look upon a young woman. I'm making a covenant with my eyes. I'm making sure, I'm making a commitment that I'm going to save my loving relationship for the person that I'm going to be married to. So this is what Jesus is saying. A lot of people misinterpret this to say, if you have lust in your heart, it's just as bad as committing adultery. That's not what he's saying. A lot of people say, well, all sin is the same. No, it's not. That's not in the Bible. In case you believe that, it's not true. It's a popular belief, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Because then, like, why should I keep myself from committing adultery? If I already lusted in my heart, it's already over. No, everyone knows that we judge people based on their actions. A person who murders isn't the same thing as a person who lies. Otherwise, why do we have a court system that gives people different sentences for different crimes? We understand in our human fallenness that there's still different punishments for different crimes. How much more the almighty just God? So that's not necessarily what he's saying. He's saying it's the root of the thing that leads to all different types of sins. So that being the case, he says, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you than one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. Essentially, he's saying if you're living a life that's headed for destruction better than that one part of you is in destruction, then the whole of you is in that destination of destruction. Now, like, think about it really basically. Like, what is Jesus saying? He's saying that lust leads to eternal damnation. That's literally what Jesus said. Imagine if Jesus comes up here and he's saying this to you today. And he says, hey, listen, you got lust in your heart. You need to cut it out. You need to get rid of it. Because it's better that you sacrifice whatever it is that's stumbling you, whatever 
it is that's precious to you, it's better that you get rid of that than your entire body be cast into hell. Imagine Jesus says that today. That's not the typical Jesus picture we have, right? But this is exactly what he's saying. Now, a lot of people might look at that and say, oh, man, well, all right, well, I need to be a monk. I need to not think about a relationship ever again. I need to move somewhere. I need to remove all distractions, throw out my TV, break my cell phone. Maybe, maybe that's true. But the thing is, it starts in the heart. That's what we need to watch out for. That even if you remove all these things, there's still sin inside of us. And we need God to rescue us from ourselves and then look at the other things around us and say, what are the things that I have to put to death in my life? It's not actually possible your right hand can cause you to sin. It's not actually possible your right eye can cause you to sin. But the idea of the right eye versus the left eye, right hand versus the left hand, is that idea of prominence. Okay, so what is it that's valuable, that's prominent to you, that really isn't helping you, and you know it? And that's the thing that you have to cut out. So a good gauge of this is this question. How's your thought life? What's the thing that you default to thinking about when your mind is at rest? Pastor D.A. Carson has this quote. Imagination is a God-given gift, but if it is fed dirt by the eye, it will be dirty. All sin, not the least sexual sin, begins with the imagination. Therefore, what feeds the imagination is of maximum importance in the pursuit of kingdom righteousness. So it's important for us to understand that if it's the case that some of you here are headed towards destruction because of the sin that you refuse to repent of, if that's the case then should we not take steps to get rid of it? Okay, so like, very basically, I think Jesus, when he says this, he actually means it. That some of us could be deceived into thinking that we're doing everything right, but we're not willing to give up the sin that continually stumbles us. The sin in our lives that we're just becoming numb to. But listen, if you have those sins in your life, you need to get rid of it. So we have to deal with lust. So here's the part that we probably haven't covered up until this far, thus far, due to the nature of time and the messages. I think one of the questions that naturally pops up is, well, like, how do you just stop thinking lustful thoughts? Like, that's a super basic question, right? So if I said to you, stop lusting, stop thinking about things that you shouldn't be thinking about, how do you actually do that? Because for those of us that struggle in that area, it seems like you can't. You don't have any choice. It's like you didn't choose to wake up and think about certain things. You didn't choose to, like, when your mind's at rest, think about those things. So you're thinking, well, okay, I'm going to stop thinking about it. And it works for, like, five seconds, and you go right back to thinking about it. How do you actually effectively weed those things out of your life? Well, I'll give you a couple ways. They all start with R. First is remove the source, and second is replace the thought. So dealing with lust, we need to first remove the source and then replace the thought. This is pertaining to the eyes, okay? What's coming in? And that means that you got to remove the source. Here's, here's something maybe you haven't thought about before. You can't think about something that you don't know, okay? Let's say that right outside, for whatever reason, maybe super alien technology, a UFO landed right outside, 
right? And like we're still having a Bible study, but none of us know. Let's say it's completely silent. You're not thinking about the UFO that's outside, even though it's right outside. But if I told you there was a UFO outside and we tried to continue our Bible study, all of us would be super distracted, right? That's what I mean. You can't think about things that you don't know exist. Think about, take an inventory of what you think about. Think about what it is that you are bringing into your eyes. What's coming in through your ears? What's coming into your mind? Take an inventory of those things. Because you may think, ah, it's not a big deal, I don't really know. But like, honestly, being on social media too long sometimes can start to change your desires, change the things that you want. How do I know this? This is literally what advertisers pay money for. They're hoping and praying. They don't really, I don't know, maybe they pray. They're hoping that by paying for their advertisement space on Instagram, advertisement space now on Snapchat or whatever else, they're hoping that they're going to compel you, persuade you to buy their product, to visit their page. That's the whole point, right? So advertisers literally spend all this money trying to do what you think doesn't happen. That's why you're like, oh, well, I think I'm going to go to the zoo today. And you're like on your phone. And you're like, how did it know I wanted to go to the zoo? Right? That's the point of advertising. So think about it. The amount of time that you spend listening to all these different messages, hearing things through music, watching things on the internet or on TV, whatever, the more that you're probably going to think about it. If you spend your entire day doing something, don't you think you would think about it at the end of the day? So the more that we're exposed to these things, the more that we have the opportunity to think about it. Now, you may be thinking, well, what if my problem is I'm just attracted to a lot of people and there's a lot of attractive people all around me? Right? Stop going to school, stop talking to people. Like, how do you do that, right? Like, very practically, like, do I really have to, like, leave the United States, just go into the middle of, like, a forest and just live there for the rest of my life? No, that's stupid. I would say, then you go to the source of what it is that's tempting you. Like, actually take an inventory of why it is that you're, you feel the need to engage in lustful activity. Remember, remember that temptation is not a sin, but indulging in that temptation is the sin. So dwelling upon it. So maybe it's if uh, you're fantasizing about a certain relationship, you're fantasizing about certain things that you shouldn't be. Like, ask yourself, bring it before the Lord and say, like, Lord, why is it that I want these things? Because oftentimes, the problem is not necessarily that you desire those things. I say often, the problem is the timing and the person. That you should be in love with your spouse one day. Like, you should... The feelings that you have, like you can't stop thinking about that person, that should be reserved for the person that you marry one day. That you are just fully in love with that person. Like, isn't that nice to be like thought about by, by somebody that you care about? If it's not somebody that you know, then it's kind of creepy. But if it's a person that you genuinely care about, to know that someone's thinking about you, sends you flowers. If you're a guy, sends you, no, I'm kidding. If you're a girl, sends you stuff like letters. Like you want to know, like you want the other person to know that you've been thinking about them. Like, that's sweet, right? That should be reserved for the person that you marry, not given to all these different types of people. That's what we're saying. We're not saying that it's terribly wrong that you feel this way and there's something wrong with you. You need to change it. Remove any romantic feelings from your body because you're evil. No, but you're reserving it for the person that you're going to marry. That's what makes it a covenant. 
You're making a covenant with your eyes. I'm not going to look on anybody else. I'm not going to desire anybody else except the person that God has for me. So therefore, I'm not going to open Pandora's box. And some of you, honestly, this is where it comes to cutting off your hand, not just your eyes, but you're actually taking active steps to say, if, you know, certain actions will turn me on, even holding people's hands or being around certain people alone or whatever, then you know what? I'm going to cut that out of my life. I'm going to put parameters. I'm going to make sure I put safeguards so I'm not stirring up affection in my heart before I'm ready to be married. Okay, so everyone has different boundaries, but you're saying if I am, if I am starting to lust in ways, obviously, that are not helpful for me in a relationship, then I'm going to take active steps to remove that source. I'm going to remove myself from those situations. Here's the second thing. So how do you stop thinking about it? Number two, replace the thought. Replace the thought. On the back of some of your shirts, it says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, in the NLT, think about the things of heaven, not the things of the earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Maybe you don't know this, but like, I've known this to be true, and I'm not trying to be super spiritual. Some of the most things, some of the most things, some of the most fun things to think about are the things of God. If you, do you ever like, as a child, love to let your imagination run wild and you're out there you know on a road trip and you're imagining like like action figure guys jumping around and stuff like remember what it's like to be playful with your mind and your imagination when you take time to think about the things of god the attributes of god the future kingdom what he has for you like all those different things that's like fun to think about like, imagine the possibilities. Imagine what God could do. Imagine how God, like, created the world in the, in, in the beginning to, you know, in the first place. Taking your imagination, putting it in healthy ways to think about your creator is a pretty fun and awesome thing. And that's perhaps a way that you can do this, is instead of saying, like, just stop thinking about it, but, like, actually replace it with healthy thoughts. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So this starts with you saying to God, well, Lord, you know that my thoughts are nasty. You know that it's not profitable, and I need you to change the way I think. Allow God Allow God to actually change the way that you think, your mental processes, your mind. Ask God to give you affections for things that please him, desires for things that please him. So you're replacing those thoughts. You're not saying, like, I'm just not going to think about anything, but you're saying I'm going to replace it with wholesome and good things. You're replacing it with things that please God and also please other people. You're being selfless. You're planning on and you're, you're strategizing how to reach others and not thinking about yourself. Okay, so that's the eyes. What comes in? Now let's talk about hands. What goes out? So the other question besides the thought life is how do you actually stop habitual sin? Because not only do you feel sometimes trapped in your thoughts, sometimes you feel like you have no power to be able to be released from habitual sinful acts. Isn't that true? Even Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So how do you get rid of that? I'll give you three ways, and they all start with R as well. Number one, repent. 
Repent. Popular biblical word. And it has massive usage here. Repent, metanoia in the Greek, means to change your mind, to change your direction. It's a 180. You were going one direction, and you go the complete opposite direction. That is the first step. It's not to try to muster up strength and say, I'm going to overcome this. I know I've been living this way for a long time, but I'm going to change it today. Lord, I'm going to do better. This is what happens. When I used to have certain addictions, that's what I did. I used to tell God, I have a pretty good plan this time. It's going to be different. Don't you worry. And I would strategize with accountability partners and whatever. And like, I got a pretty good idea of how I'm going to be able to conquer the sin on my own. I didn't say it like that. But that's what I thought. That's what I felt. And I felt more and more despair each and every time that I failed. Well, this is where you have to repent. It's like Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he talks to Jesus. And he says, you know, basically, how does one get to the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, well, how do you do that? And he actually says, he says, so how does a guy go back into his mother's womb? Which is like a very graphic picture that no one wants to actually think about. But he says this to Jesus, and Jesus is like, stop. Stop that. No. <laughs> He's like, you're completely misunderstanding what I'm saying. It's being born of the Holy Spirit. Listen. This is what religion does. It says, well, how can I do the works of God? How can I conquer sin? And Jesus says, you can. It's the Holy Spirit. It's what he does. It's what he wills. So in order to be born again, it's not something you do. It's something that God does inside of you. So the first recognition we need to have is that you can't do it. You need the Holy Spirit to do as he wills. And you're saying, Lord, I need you to work in me both to will and to do for your good pleasure. And then, once you, once you have that power from the Holy Spirit, you flee. You flee youthful lust. It's almost like Joseph when he was in Potiphar's house. Remember the story? And Potiphar's wife wanted to sleep with him. And Joseph ran the other direction. That's the kind of attitude that we need to take with sin. Because we're not thinking about it like, well, maybe it's God's will Maybe this circumstance is actually going to work for good. Maybe I can work it out. You're, you're just going. You're running. You're fleeing youthful lusts. So fleeing means that, this is what the Bible calls us to do, within repentance, that you walk in the Spirit. The Bible says, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The two are contrary to one another. So here's the thing. I've always taken this to be a very practical thing, okay? You can't lust and at the same time be in the spirit. It is impossible. You can't be selfless and trying to be self-fulfilling at the same time. So in those moments of temptation, anytime that you're tempted to fulfill the lust of the flesh, guess what? There's an opportunity to walk in the spirit. So all you have to do is see it for what it is. When that opportunity for temptation comes in, you're like, nope, I definitely know that's the devil. So where is God, and where does he want me to go? This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Listen, don't despair the next time that you're tempted and feel like I have no choice. 
The fact is the Bible gives you the option, if you have believed on Jesus, you have been filled with this Holy Spirit, there is always the option to embrace the Spirit and resist the flesh. So that's the first thing is repent. The second thing is this, resist sin and the devil. So how do you stop habitual sinful acts? You repent. Number two, you resist sin and the devil. James chapter four, verse seven says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Your ability to resist the power of Satan is only possible if you submit to God. It's only possible to resist the powers of darkness if you submit to God in his kingdom. But isn't that kind of awesome? Like, think about it. The devil's a pretty powerful being, isn't he? Like, he tempted Adam and Eve, and they fell into sin, right? He's the guy that's dragging, like, countless souls into hell. But the Bible says here that if you submit to God, you can resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Isn't that crazy? And it doesn't say flee from God either. It says flee from you because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Now, that's a pretty significant power, isn't it? That if you are encountering people that are demon-possessed, you don't have to be afraid. Like, it can be a scary thing, right? But you don't need to be afraid because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And if Satan, his demons, temptation comes, you have the ability to resist through the Holy Spirit. Now, read a verse, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. It talks about looking unto Jesus when we're running a race, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, so very popular verse. Here's what people miss. Right in that verse, because it's such a beautiful verse, they miss the next two verses that are a beautiful pattern on how to be able to escape sin. Okay, so looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, it says, for considered him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So consider the fact that Jesus went to the cross and endured hostility from sinners because you might become discouraged, you might become weary in running this race, but when you look to Jesus, you become re-energized. And then verse four, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. So the author of Hebrews is basically like, hey, when's the last time that you were trying so hard not to sin that you started bleeding, you know? Like, it hasn't happened, right? Most of us are like, oh, I can't go on the internet because I'm going to be so tempted. Oh, oh, well. And then it just, like, happens again somehow. And I was like, no! You're like, you're, like, taping yourself to the wall or something. Like, that doesn't happen, right? Like, do we really try that hard? That's the point here. But it's not taking active measures physically necessarily that will save you, it's looking unto Jesus, being inspired by the cross, and then you're re-energized. And suddenly, you're weary, you're discouraged, you're like, ah, I get it. It's not the fact that Jesus went to the cross and he was just Jesus, he was God, that he made it, but he actually laid aside his Godhead powers. He didn't use it on the cross and was like suddenly invisible. This is what I used to think when I was three years, three years old, by the way. I used to think, what if Jesus used his power and just numbed the pain when he was on the cross? Like, maybe. Maybe he just faked it. Who knows? And he still died and went on the cross. We could still probably go to heaven, right? But actually, according to biblical theology, Jesus did not use any of his Godhead powers to numb the pain. He endured all of it as a human being because he loved you. Isn't that crazy? Like, 
Jesus did not use any ounce of the Holy Spirit's power to numb the pain. And I've heard different biographies where people say, like, right before martyrs die, sometimes the Holy Spirit gives them a certain peace. Like Stephen in Acts chapter, I think, 7 or 8, when right before he dies, he sees Jesus on the clouds, and then he's, he's at peace, and then he's, he's stoned to death. He dies, right? Certain mar- martyrs, it seems like the Holy Spirit comforts them right before they die. But Jesus went to the cross and bore all of our shame, all of our pain, and didn't use any of it to numb it. So what drove him? It was love and his glory. Being able to go to the cross and say, I'm doing this. I'm going all the way. So we are inspired. We're like, man, Jesus did that as a human being. And that's to say that I can endure hostility and shame. I'm not... I'm not enduring anything near to what Jesus endured. I can endure the lot that he has given me today through his Holy Spirit. So repent, resist. Lastly, remove obvious opportunities to sin. Remove obvious opportunities to sin. The reason why David sinned with Bathsheba is largely in part, if you know the story, because he did not go out to battle as kings were supposed to do in his season. He's up on a rooftop, and he was able to glance over, and there was Bathsheba bathing naked. Now, he could have put up a curtain. He could have had something. I mean, he's the king. He could have moved the palace probably, right? But he did not remove an obvious opportunity to sin, and the longer that she was there, the easier it was for, for him to fantasize and to think about how he would be able to engage in that opportunity. This is what James says in chapter 1, verse 14. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Here's what you need to know. Sin is also like a seed, and it grows. When you allow sin to be watered, When you allow sin to grow, when it fully blooms, it gives birth to death. So you think, it's just a small sin. It's not that big of a deal. It's only a thought. I'm never really going to act on it. But sin always wants more of you. Sin is never satisfied. It never says, ah, you know what? That's enough. We'll just have you stop at pornography. That's it. You have to remember that Satan is a liar. He's a thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy And he'll use any opportunity, any bit of unrepented sin in your life to be able to completely take advantage of you. And before you know it, you're going to be compromising because he's a deceiver. This is why it's so important to be in the word of God every day, to be praying, to be in community with other believers who remind you of what's most important. Because when we're left to ourselves, when we're in isolation, or we're just left in the world with unsafe friends, we completely forget these things because they're so enticing. If temptation wasn't enticing, nobody would would give in to it. If sin wasn't desirable, no one would sin. But the fact of the matter is Satan is very crafty at making all of us think that this is what people really want. This morning I had a like super awkward talk with half of you guys about, you guys know. I was doing a demonstration, demonstration, definitely not demonstration. (laughs) Cut that out of the tape. I won't even tell you what I was doing now because it would just be awkward. So we were talking about sexual sin, essentially. And we are talking about how people don't know 
that one little act can lead to all kinds of different unforeseen consequences. No one says, I want a sexually transmitted infection. No one says that, right? So how does it happen? It's by small compromises leading to bigger compromises. People don't even know. A lot of STIs, people don't even know because they don't have any symptoms of it, but they pass it on to somebody else. So this is why it's important to know ahead of time that God has certain things prescribed for us in his word, that if we follow it, it has uh, the, the, um, the best benefits on how to live. Next, we have with our marriage. Okay, the last two will go a little bit faster, so don't worry. We only have about 10 minutes left. Verse 31, Jesus continues and says, Furthermore, it has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. Whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So I know going through that passage, you're like, none of us are married, so this really doesn't apply to us. It actually does. It may not have a broader application because you're single, but I think there's a couple things that we can take away and store it for later and also apply it for now. Essentially, what we wanted, so actually remember um, in this passage, I said this before and I could have just saved it for, for now, but in those days, they felt like you could divorce for any, any reason, any little thing. It's like, not a big deal. And Jesus says, hey, listen, for any other reason than sexual uh, immorality, it is an invalid reason to be able to break off that marriage covenant. It's that serious. So it's important to remember that right now you're setting up disciplines in your life to keep you committed when times get hard. Don't start working on your marriage when you're married. Start working on your marriage now, even if you don't know who that person is. You're setting up disciplines in your life. You're practicing self-control. Like, think about it. If you're addicted to pornography now, how are you going to contain your lust when you're married? Don't think it just magically goes away, right? You're setting up disciplines in your life now so that you can be selfless in marriage. You're saying, you know what? I want to start in the Word every single morning. I want to be praying every single day. Not because it makes me more holy or religious or whatever, but I'm thinking, like, if it's hard to lead myself, it's probably going to be hard to lead a family. It's probably going to be hard to lead somebody else or my kids. So set up those disciplines now for when times get hard. Because evidently it does, right? Evidently people do, unfortunately, want to break off those commitments. So not only is it about your marriage here on earth, but I think this is also an application to our marriage in Christ, right? The fact that all of us are the bride of Christ. We are the church. And so in a similar way, we are setting up disciplines in our lives to keep us in the will of God, to keep us seeking after him when times get hard. When life gets hard, you're going through things in your life, maybe family difficulties, sickness, whatever. You have certain disciplines that are non-negotiables. You're saying, I'm committing to these certain things because I know life will get hard. I'm going to get discouraged, but I'm still going to do this anyway because I know that it's important. So the last thing I'm going to say about this regarding marriage, and this is something I was thinking about. It's like pretty heavy thought. Um, and this almost goes back to the last point. If you take what Jesus is saying at a very practical level, what's really interesting is Jesus is essentially saying 
that sex is so serious an activity that even God will be permitting someone to break off a marriage covenant because of its violation. Isn't that crazy? Like God, who is the steadfast loving one, who is covenantal, who wrote the book of Hosea, how Hosea married a prostitute and chasing after her and all that stuff. This loving God, right, all loving God says that sexual immorality is the only permitted reason, though it's not intended or desired, the only permitted reason why someone could break off a marriage engagement, a marriage that God himself is supposed to be a part of. Isn't that crazy? What does that tell you about sexual activity? It's very serious to God. In our culture, it's just what people do for fun. But imagine how disheartening that is, how depressing, discouraging that is for the Lord, that people treat it so flippantly when it's meant to be something sacred. Don't take it lightly when you're engaging in those kinds of activities because you're breaking the heart of God himself. Okay, lastly, we have with our word. Verse 33, again, you have heard it as said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you, not, you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, some of you are like, I just did, like last week. I just colored my hair. That's not what he's saying. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Essentially, what God is saying really quickly there is he's not talking about, like, dyeing your hair. He's talking about your age. You can't control the aging process. You can try, but the fact of the matter is you have no control over your body. How much more when you're making these promises and you're like, I swear on my life. Like, what does that even mean? You don't have control over your life. And in those days, people would say, well, you can't swear by God's name because that was like super serious. You could swear by the temple because that's like less serious. You could swear by people. You could swear on your mother's grave. You can swear on all kinds of things and that's permissible. And, and Jesus is like, no, what are, you, what are you talking about? Don't swear at all, neither by heaven. That's God's throne. That's not yours. You're going to swear by the earth? That's his footstool. Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. You can't even swear by your head. Like, why are you swearing at all? Don't swear. Just say yes or say no and just keep it at that. This is what God is saying. Keep your word. If Jesus is the truth, then we should also be truthful in the things that we say. Like Lloyd said, uh, Pastor Lloyd said maybe two weeks ago when he was teaching this passage. If you have to swear, if you have to promise, like, oh, I swear on my mother's grave, I promise you, I swear to God. When you say stuff like that, what does that say about you? You're not a trustworthy person. Why can't you just say that you'll be somewhere and you're actually going to be there? Now, according to a study by the Jour Journal of Business Ethics in 2012, it found that people are more likely to lie via text than any other form of communication. It's so easy to lie to people today, isn't it? It's so easy to flake on your boss, flake on your friends, because you don't have to show them any emotional cues. It's an easy out to be able to say, like, I'm going to think about how I'm going to respond in a half hour and then reply to them, hey, I was really busy. It's so easy. you got to watch it, right? We all have to be careful because we might be deceiving other people and directing them away from who our God is and his character. That he's always truthful. Now, why do we lie? Why do we say these things, take them back? Why do we use promises? 
The reason why is I think because of the biblical truth that out of the, uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when we lie, we're trying to make people think that what's inside of us is really good. If out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, then that means that what's coming out of me is the truth. So if I tell you something that's contrary, you're going to think that I'm a good person. If I promise you that I'll be there next week, then you're going to have to believe me because that's coming right from my heart, right? But that's deceiving, and that's not the way that it should be. I think people of God should be committed and not be afraid of commitment because the other danger is people say, well, I'm just not going to tell people I'll do anything. And that's pretty much the culture of today. That's pretty much every teenager on planet Earth and everybody in their 20-somethings. Well, I don't want to make any plans because then I'll have to actually follow through with them. Like, hey, you want to hang out this week? Well, maybe I need to check my schedule and I'll get back to you in three days. And you don't even get back to them in three days. Like, you lied, you know? Well, and what you're really saying is, we'll see, like, if there's anything more important coming around. And if not, then I'll hang out with you. That's messed up. How much better to say, you are so valuable to me that I will make sure that I will be wherever you want me to be. Like, if you're saying, let's hang out, I will make sure it happens. Like, wouldn't that be a great reputation to have rather than the person of like, yeah, I try to hang out with them, but who knows if they're going to show up this Saturday. And then you're making plans based on contingencies, like whether or not it'll happen or not. So, hey, what are you doing this Saturday? Well, I'm supposed to hang out with three different people, but they all might flake because they're pretty good at that. So if they all flake, they'll be free to hang out with you. Right? That's kind of like how we work today. That's just so stressful. Don't do that. Instead, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. If you're going to do something, just follow through with it. How about this? If you're not serving in the church, why not? Well, I don't know if I can commit right now because I have school. And that's a priority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. You think you're going to get less busy as you get older? No. What do you do when you have kids? Goodness gracious. Like, oh, well, you know what? I'm just going to get a babysitter every single day for the rest of my life. It doesn't work that way. Why not just say, yes, I will be there, and you just show up anyway? Well, I don't know what's going to happen for the next three months. You don't. That's the whole point of this passage. You can't even change one hair on your head from white and black. You can't do that. You have no control of your life, yet God still says you should commit. You don't know what the future holds. You don't know how busy you're going to be, but you're committing. You're saying, I'm going to be there anyway. I'm going to be selfless and going to provide for the person um, that is in need. Sometimes I think we prioritize our feelings over the need itself. Imagine the good Samaritan that's walking alongside the road, sees the guy who's dying, and says, you know what, I really don't feel called to the dying man ministry, and I'm just going to keep on walking. You know who actually had commitments? The Levite and the priest. They're like, well, I have places to be. Yeah, 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 I'm just really. But what if the thing that God has created you to do is not something you would immediately sign up for? What if it's not something that's flashy or cool? Maybe it's what God's put on your heart, and you should just do it. Just actually just serve. Step out in faith and do it. I only started serving youth ministry because another youth leader said to me, hey, they could probably use some youth leaders in junior high ministry. You should sign up. And I said, I guess so. And I just did it. I just never stopped. So most importantly, God is committed to keep his promises. Imagine if God could change. Imagine if he could back out on his word. If he said, um, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it come into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for him. Just kidding. Actually, for you, uh, I changed my mind. 
Wouldn't that be really discouraging? For I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord. Ah, yeah, not anymore. I don't really think about you at all, actually. That would be messed up. Yeah, it's permissible for us. I don't think so. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man, so he does not lie. He's not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? This is who our God is. It's like when Abraham and Sarah were trying to have a baby, and they couldn't. They were like 100 years old. And God says, you're going to have a son. And they laughed. They're like, that's funny. We're way too old for that. I don't think you know how this works, God. They believed his promises. Isn't that cool? Like, God promised them something they didn't even believe, and it still happened. Could it be that God's promising you something tonight? And we just have to step out in faith and say, like, all right, I'm willing to take hold of what it is that God's calling me to do, which requires us to do our part as well. So here's the conclusion. This is it. Last thing I'll say tonight. We become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. If the imagination of your heart, your continual thoughts are consumed with lust, you're going to become like the thing that you worship. If that is the most important thing to you is a relationship, you're going to become a very shallow, hollow person like the images that you worship. If you are all about success, you're going to become like the success that you worship. In other words, you're going to become superficial because you're always going to have to maintain your image. It's not going to be real. This is what happens is people that worship wooden idols, whatever, things of stone back in the day, when they worship those things, the Bible says they became like them. They became empty. But if you become like God, if you worship God, you become like God. So if you want to be committed, all you have to do is worship the Lord. If you want to be truthful, you want to be loving, worship the Lord. Look upon Jesus, look upon the cross, and you become more and more like him. And you're able to break off those unhealthy habits, those unhealthy thoughts, and anything else that's been holding you back up until now. Let's pray.